Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa So sometimes I like to begin the Dharma talk like that to remind myself and all of us what we're up to here. And we're singing from this uh, ancient songbook, uh, 2,600-year-old songbook of the Dharma. In some ways, every night you get to hear one of us sing a karaoke version of this. So we're bringing our own modern flavor and uh, tunelessness or tunefulness to it, but uh, hopefully it's the same song that's um, coming through, which is the song of uh, freedom, of truth, of liberation. So today I was... Uh, considering and reflecting on the Dharma um, before coming here. And I saw uh, someone outside my window fiddling with these different boxes outside. So being curious and not in silence, I went out to uh, find out what she was doing. And there's these bird boxes around uh, Spirit Rock. And um, she told me that they're set up as nests for different types of birds. So she was cleaning them out for the um, springtime, so that birds could come and uh, nest there. So she told me it was the, uh, I think it was the bluebirds, and there were two kinds of swallows, and an uh, ash-throated something, like warbler or something like that. Uh, so she explained about the different birds and their habits and whatnot, and then she asked me what I was doing here. <laughs> So she's not from Spirit Rock, she's a, like a bird uh, naturalist from Marin. And I told her that I was on this one-month uh, retreat here, you know, teaching it. And uh, she was kind of amazed, and she was like, really, for a month? Like, all those people aren't working? They're, uh... <laughs> I said, well, they're, they're kind of working in a different way. But, uh... <laughs> so in case you forgot to appreciate your good fortune that uh, <laughs> we all get to be here for a month, uh, it's really an unusual and beautiful thing that astound many people. You know. And I hope also that some of the time, even though it does feel like work, some of the time it also feels like play. You know, that you get to play in this field of uh, understanding the Dharma, understanding experience, of being in wonder at how the unfolding happens and uh, learning things. So some of the things that you might be able to play with that can help to unravel the way in which we usually see things, 
for example. We have this idea of uh, space as existing. But some of you might have gotten some inkling of this if you're practicing walking meditation and you start to notice that the seeing is one thing and the experience of the body is another thing and the hearing is something else. And this idea of space is actually an illusion. The visual field is changing and there's different sensations going on in the body, some type of experience of sound and put all together in composite, it feels like there's something called space that we're moving through. But it doesn't really exist in the way that we always think it does. So similarly, the idea of time So I'm sure when you've been sitting here, there have been various thoughts that came up about, I did this in the past, and this thing happened to me, and when I leave here, I'll do this, or the retreat is this much longer, or sometimes even the sitting is this much longer. (laughs) But this too is an illusion. All of time is an illusion. It's just a thought in the present. That's all it is. It's a thought in the present about something that we believe, and thus the entirety of time is created. So I could end my Dharma talk now, having unraveled time and space, I think. (laughs) Right? I could go. (laughs) But I'll share with you a few more uh, reflections. So one of the the angles of um, unraveling one of the tips in unraveling that the Buddha gave us is um, around this area of uh, how we perceive things. And that things are not exactly how we perceive them to be. They're not necessarily different, but they're not necessarily as they appear to be. So everything in experience is, is concocted, you could say. So it's kind of like the rainbow that exists or doesn't exist. So rainbow is there, but it's a temporary arising because of conditions. So the rain has come, and then there's, uh, the sun has to come at a certain angle, and then kind of acts as a prism, and then this beautiful arc of color appears in the sky for a moment. And then it disappears when those conditions change. So when the sun goes behind a cloud, or the Crystals in the air fall, the rainbow disappears. So with the rainbow we understand this is a conditional arising. And maybe we'll try and take a picture of it, but we certainly don't think we can take it home or like capture it or own it. So it's very clearly there because of different conditions that have arisen. And then when it goes, those conditions go, the rainbow also fades. And this is actually true about everything. So in the teachings of the Dharma, the Buddha suggests these different frameworks or ways of seeing that we can practice that can help us to have a freedom. A freedom from uh, clinging, from suffering, from ways of relating that are out of sync with the truth of the way things are. So I'd like to talk with you a little bit about uh, some of these, and particularly some things that are called the three characteristics, 
Uh, you could consider them the three perspectives, too. Sometimes they're called the three marks of existence, uh, which is anicca, anatta, and dukkha. So this is about cultivating the perception of change, cultivating the perception of non-self, which is kind of the trickiest one to understand, and cultivating the perception of insubstantiability or of unsatisfactoriness. So because everything is changing and has no inherent solidity, it's unreliable or unsatisfactory. Now this might seem like uh, ABCs of Dharma. You've probably heard this before. But I encourage you to keep your ears open still. Uh, Because we get these at different levels. And here from your time on retreat, it's like the soil of the mind is ripe for understanding. You're in a good space to take something in in a way that we may not have before. So the Buddha encourages us to look at this, particularly in relation to uh, the aggregates, which Philip talked about uh, some nights ago. Um, But just to recognize that everything in our experiential world is in fact changing, is not solid. And also because of this is actually unreliable. It's not something that we can take refuge in. So when we uh, don't understand this, we believe particularly, most particularly, in the idea of there being some solid, independent, uh, continuous entity of myself. And this gets us into a lot of trouble. So these uh, aggregates or skandhas or piles or heaps. So we had consciousness. So this is the knowing through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, mind, sensing, sixth one, yeah. We have the aggregate of form, so that includes the experience of the body and all the stuff that is the object of consciousness. It could be called this rupa form. And then we have these aspects of the mental field So this includes uh, one of uh, volitions, one of perceptions, uh, and sankharas, the the volitional formations, perceptions, and vedana, feeling, tone. So I kind of grouped those three just for ease of uh, considering them in the mental field. Even though in some ways, uh, vedana, you could say, is uh, vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is a perception too. Uh, So that's kind of a subset of perception. And then volition is also within the mental field. So we'll start with form. So the experience of the body as being impermanent. So this is, of course, scientifically true, even though we don't always perceive it to be. So I'll read you a little uh, science from... The New York Times, 
This is an article called Your Body is Younger Than You Think. So whatever your age, your body is many years younger. In fact, even if you're middle-aged, most of you may be just 10 years old or less. This arises from the fact that most of the body's tissues are under constant renewal. And this article is from 2005. And this was uh, discovered by a new method of estimating the age of human cells. So the inventor believed the average age of all the cells in an adult's body may turn out to be as young as 7 to 10 years. Cells from the muscles of the ribs, uh, taken from people in their late 30s, have an average age of 15 years, they say. And the average age of those in the main body of the gut is 16 years, but the lining of the gut, the cells only last five days. The body is in a constant state of flux as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. So even though you think of your body as a fairly permanent structure, each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by its cells. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the circulatory system, last only 120 days or so before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis or surface layer of the skin is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this quick replacement is that this is like the body's saran wrap and it can be easily damaged from scratching solvents wear and tear. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass a person's lips, its life on the chemical warfare front is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but are still far from permanent. Even the bones endure a nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone dissolving and bone rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So we are part of nature. We are nature in this way. Just as the streams and the trees and the soil and everything is constantly changing in motion, we also are connected to this, are part of this flow, uh, the physical body. So where this process, this is uh, impermanence, is anicca, change. And in this, how can we call something a completely permanent controlling entity of me? That's really the, the, the aspect of it, the angle of it. And these are not like permanent truths to be understood. They're kind of tools to unpick our usual perspective on the solidity of this being me and mine, this being something under my control. So in this way then the body is not gonna be a place that we can substantially and satisfactorily take refuge. The sitting practice is designed to show this. 
Because when you sit here for not too much long time, the body starts to complain in ways that if you were the master of it, (laughs) you probably wouldn't have designed. If you were the puppet master, would you have created that pain in your back or itch or even sneeze or anything? So it's humbling, but this is part of the truth that we can recognize, the way in which we are actually nature. What we call ourselves is actually nature in this way. So similarly with the Vedana, this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Uh, Nikki spoke about this some time ago. This too is constantly in flux. And our usual strategy for well-being is to try to line up only pleasant Vedana, to try to avoid unpleasant Vedana. And then usually we miss most of the neutral. So this is a poignantly unsuccessful strategy for dealing with a world in which you can't control the weather or your own body or anything in the field of sound, smell, taste, touch. So this pleasant, unpleasant neutral also cannot be myself. It's not under my control. And it too can be unsatisfactory. It's not reliable. It's not a reliable place to rest our hopes and dreams for well-being. The mental formation is also constantly changing. Volitions, everything in the mind, as you've experienced. It's an idea we have that there's a me there, but it's not to be found. And obviously, anything that happens in the mental field also as changing and as, a lot of the time, uh, painful, is not something that you would have scripted. But particularly these volitions just arise and pass away. The last two I want to spend a little bit more focus on today, uh, which is the aspect of perception and of consciousness. And these two are impermanent, anatta, not-self, and also unsatisfactory. So in some ways our practice, if we're paying attention to objects in meditation, is designed to help us see the impermanence of external forms. And it can help us to know these as impermanent and therefore not under my control and unreliable. But it's good to check in that sometimes with meditation, there can be some refuge of an idea of a me, and that can be in the area of consciousness. So even though there's no evidence of this, there can be a kind of quiet, underlying sense that there's a me who's the observer of all this. There's a me who's the meditator, who's directing attention. There's a me who wants to follow their breath, 
There's the me who's going to do walking meditation. There's me, the observer, that doesn't like the weather. So there's no evidence for there being actually some lasting independent entity there. It's kind of just like a shadow. It's so insubstantial. It doesn't take too much to find its absence in some ways. This is a demonstration of the uncontrollability of the body here. <clears throat> Actually, also of unsatisfactoriness, because it's been weeks of uh, <laughs> sputtering along. So with this uh, you know, consciousness, it's very interesting to check in if, if you have this, this sense of being the observer. And in some ways, it's like, well, what's the problem with that? I mean, the first problem is that it's not actually true. There's no one there. The other one is that uh, as long as there's someone who is behind it all, there's someone you have to protect. So then there's, if you are the observer or the knower, if you identify with consciousness in this way, then you might want to protect consciousness from having bad experiences. You, know, you might want, want to protect it from being harmed in some way we have some sense of being separate from everything and everyone. And all of this is an illusion. It's not actually true. So you just kind of gently, very, very subtly turn your awareness back on awareness itself. And just look for that one who you imagine to be there and try to find them. So try to try to, to to know them, try to sense them, try to feel them. And my guess is it's hard to find them because they're not actually there. The last one of uh, perception is a particularly interesting one. So to notice the three characteristics with sanya or perception. So perception is that which cognizes or knows or identifies experience. So it can identify a sound, uh, it can identify sight, smell, a taste, a touch. Sometimes this is done with a word, but a lot of times it's not done with a word. Not, a word label doesn't arise for you, but you know this is what this is and how to use it. The chair, the bell, the table. So here also we have this perception sometimes of there being particularly a solidity to ourself and to things, and then sometimes we have a perception that it's not that. And it's really helpful to recognize this factor of perception because this too is always changing, is conditional, and because of this it's not to be either feared or trusted. So sometimes meditators will have an experience of impermanence, for example, with the body, or uh, experience of impermanence with regarding mind and thoughts. And oftentimes it's when 
collectedness or concentration is strong. And it can be so cool, like everything's just coming and going, or you can feel the feet in walking meditation and just as energy, something like that. And then something happens and it changes and it's back to like clunky old me, right? (laughs) And usually the tendency is to want to get back and try to concoct like, well, how did I get that cool experience of uh, the body or the mind? Like, what did I eat? Where did I sit? Where did I walk? How do I get back to that? So if this ever happens, you could reflect like, oh, okay, this is just a perception. There was a perception of impermanence. There was a a perception, uh, there was actually a lack of perception of self, and it was a flow like this. And now there's a perception of self. Now there's a perception of solidity. This is just what this is like. So this is just a perception. And that too will change. So we actually don't need to get too worked up about it. It doesn't mean that the other perception was not true. It also doesn't mean that this perception is not true. There are ways of seeing that can help us uh, see through, at least, the usual way that we see solidity. So with perception, sometimes the most helpful place to look is when it fails, when it breaks down. So when your perception is wrong. So when you mistake someone for someone else, for example. Or when you mistake a thing that you see for something else. The classic is the seeing a rope and thinking it's a snake, and then realizing it's a rope. Or maybe you see something and you think that it's a bird and then it's just something fluttering in the wind. So this is true of our perceptions and stories too. So we live in this world of our uh, shadowy make-believe and it's helpful to take our perceptions with a grain of salt, knowing they're just perceptions. So particularly now, you are all deep, deep in yogi land. (laughs) You're deep in the land of uh, meditation where the usual ways of relating have been removed and you might find yourself having strange thoughts obsessing about your shoes and (laughs) which shoes you will put on or finding yourself homicidally angry at someone for taking a banana or something like that. (laughs) So this is how it is in yogi land. So you might occasionally get the, get the inkling like, oh, I'm, wow, I'm kind of crazy now, right? <laughs> and then you might start to blame like meditation or spirit rock or the teachers often, you know. Uh, but actually you have always been exactly this crazy. Is <laughs> <laughs> only being highlighted by the fact that the conditions of retreat are such that the way we usually grasp and cling uh, is like completely societally condoned. You know. And here is one of the things about simplifying it down is you realize like, wow, the mind is crazy. The mind is just a chaotic monkey, you know, full of suffering and doing all these different things and sometimes also beautiful and generous, so not all bad. But it's not necessarily to be trusted. You know, and my perceptions of things are not necessarily to be trusted. 
even my perception about what happened in some case or all of this stuff. Like watch the mind make up stories. You know, watch the mind do this. It, it kind of does this either for entertainment or out of habit or from suffering. And then watch yourself inhabit those stories and suffer. Or rejoice, right? In either case. So having a sense of humor with the monkey mind is really, really good. Uh, and, you know, if you see the ways in which this happens, and you're like, wow, I'm, I've been so obsessed about my shoe for so long, you know, just take that with a sort of compassionate, um, compassionate humor, if you can. Pretty much everyone is doing this inside the retreat and outside the retreat. But it's just more obvious that how crazy the mind is when you have, like, stark relief of renunciation, you know, to show it how it, how it goes. It's very helpful. <clears throat> it's very helpful and freeing. So the biggest uh, misperception that we have is this idea that there is this substantial, permanent uh, entity that we call me. And <clears throat> we can kind of pay attention to how this is in our relationship to objects. So for example, um, this table here uh, is made of wood. And <clears throat> if we reflect on it, this was once a tree. And then the tree changed to become planks. And then the planks were put together as this stand. And so now it's this temporarily, but then eventually it'll start to fall apart. <clears throat> it'll be tossed out. It'll turn to dust. <clears throat> Sawdust, it'll return to the earth. So that's the story of this uh, podium here. But there's also the story of that which we call ourself. And this uh, reflecting on the aggregates as impermanent, as unsatisfactory, <clears throat> and as not having some solidity in this way uh, can help us free ourselves. So the Buddha talks about what happens if you don't understand that, which is pretty much most of us, most of the time. And uh, sometimes he calls us the, um, those who, are, who don't know about this, the uninstructed worldlings. So he's talking to the practitioners. So practitioners, what should be abandoned by seeing? <clears throat> Here practitioner is an untaught, ordinary person uh, who is unskilled and undisciplined in Dhamma. Uh, so basically doesn't know yet. Uh, they don't understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that's so, they attend to those things unfit for attention, <clears throat> and they don't attend to those things fit for attention. So what are the unfit things that they attend to? So uh, he lists a whole bunch of things, basically uh, ignorance and sensual desire and the causes of that. And so then through this this attending unwisely comes this stream of thought. And to me this is so poignant. It's like as if he was reading all of our minds. So the result of this is this stream of thought. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? What shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? 
Having been what, what shall I become in the future? <laughs> or else the practitioner, the, this un, unwise worldling, is inwardly perplexed about the present even. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? <clears throat> Where does this being come from? Where will it go? When they attend unwisely in this way, one of six views arises for them. The view, the self exists for me. The view, no self exists for me. The view, I perceive self with self. The view, I perceive not self with self. The view, I perceive self with not self. The view, it is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. But the self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. These speculative views, uh, practitioners are called the thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the fetter of views. Fettered by these fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth, aging, death, and from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So they are not yet freed from suffering. So it's uncanny. It's like he's reading our minds. <laughs> if you observe most of the thoughts about myself in the past, what I will become in the future, how I am right now, you know, it's, it's quite striking. And they all stem from this misperception. Misunderstanding. So then you might wonder, well, what's what's it like to be Buddha? Like, what is he actually, what's he what's he actually perceiving? So occasionally there are suttas in which he describes what his experience is now. So this one is the Kalaka Sutta, Kalakarama Sutta. And he's describing the himself, so he's called a Tathagata. So as thus monks, the Tathagata, <clears throat> when seeing what is to be seen, doesn't construe of an object as seen. He doesn't construe of an unseen. He doesn't construe of an object to be seen. And he doesn't construe of a seer. And then he goes through all the different sense doors like that. When hearing, he doesn't construe of an object as heard, doesn't construe of an unheard, doesn't construe of an object to be heard, and doesn't construe of a hearer. And then similar when sensing and when cognizing. Doesn't construe as an object as cognized, doesn't construe as an uncognized, doesn't construe an object to be cognized, and doesn't construe a cognizer. So the language may be complicated, but basically he's letting everything be as it is. So not adding the overlays that are unnecessarily put on by us of some idea of me or of something that's worth seeing or unseen, or anything like that.
So in our practice, our perception can shift at different times. And sometimes there's a sense of solidity, sometimes there's a sense of fluidness, sometimes there's a sense of complete emptiness. And recognize these as perceptions. It's helpful to investigate if this is true in your own experience. So investigate whether there is impermanence. Investigate even in the most sublime states of mind. Is there a me in this? Who created this? Who controls this? Is there some way in which I'm misperceiving a knower in this? I'll share with you one more uh, reflection from the Buddha's uh, teachings that I found helpful. And he was talking about the different, you know, the aggregates, and sort of wondering, like, well, why is it that, why is it that I'm relating in this way that is causing suffering? And I know some of you have done this, like you're caught in some pattern of thought, and you're like, ah, what's going on here? Like, why is this happening? Is it habit? Is it like uh, a curse or something? (laughs) So there's an interesting framework that he presents that's about the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So before my awakening, when I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully awakened, it occurred to me, what is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of form? What is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of feeling? What is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in case of perception? What is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of volitional formations? And what is the danger? What is the escape? What is the gratification in the case of consciousness? So you can investigate this with awareness and sometimes with a little reflection too. <clears throat> if you're feeling caught in something, like what, it, what is actually the gratification in this state? And sometimes there's a hidden pleasantness in something, even in something like anger, for example. A state of anger sometimes can be pleasant, you know, sort of intoxifying in the arising of self that comes in that or in a sense of power or energy. So some part of us feels the suffering of it, but there's another part that has like tapped into this, oh, there's a sense of illusory gratification in this. There's a pleasantness. Or getting caught in mind states of fantasy. Even just imaginary fantasy, just like daydreaming or more intense stuff, sexual fantasy. So check in, take a step back. Okay, what's the gratification? Like, what's, what's, what am I getting out of this, if anything? What is the catalyst? What's happening right before that? Is it boredom, and then this? 
Is there an unpleasant experience of the body and mind? And then the mind goes to this. Is it like turning on the TV to soothe myself in some way? And then what's the danger? Like, why not do this? Like, why not sit here all day and daydream? And you have to be really honest with yourself sometimes about what's happening and really investigate. You know, this is like trying to understand yourself. Like, what's the mind up to? You know, what's going on with this? What's going on in the system? What is not being seen clearly or understood? And there are long periods of time when you might know intellectually, like, oh, this, this is not a worthwhile, this delusion. And yet the pattern keeps happening over and over again. and We get sucked in over and over again. So if you can look at that as an opportunity for more learning, it's really helpful. You can reflect on it in terms of the aggregates if you want. All right, so what, what field is this? What are, what are the components of this? kind of pick apart the ways in which we believe something to be substantial or look for a self there. And then the trickiest one is, what's the escape? How do you escape? Now in this particular sutta, he's describing the, uh, <clears throat> the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence and form is a gratification. Uh, the, that form is impermanent suffering and subject to change is the danger. And then the removal and abandonment of desire and lust for form is the escape. So it kind of speaks to uh, one question that sometimes has come to me when I sit here on retreat or just in life, you know. And we've heard this thing about samsara. You might have heard about the endless round of rebirth. And whether or not you believe this actually about uh, taking on different forms or you know, moving between realms or anything, all of you at this point are very intimately familiar with the endless round of rebirth just from sitting here. So the endless round of rebirth in your mind of the same story over and over again. Finding yourself becoming this one and then becoming that one being dragged into seemingly the past and being dragged off into the future. So it's incredibly tiring to to be in samsara like this, isn't it? There's something exhausting. And allow yourself to feel that exhaustion of that. Because the thing I've come to about, well, why are we still roiling around here is basically the short answer is because we want to. Because there's some part of us that is not seeing clearly that still wants to, that, that thinks this is a good idea. Yeah. And we can have compassion for this aspect of delusion, you know, this not clear seeing. But just investigate this. You could take this as a hypothesis. You know, is this true? There's some way in which we're not seeing the danger of this. We're not seeing that it's not a good idea. And also we're not seeing the escape, we're not seeing the way out. So playing with these, these characteristics as tools to help you unpick delusion, 
to try to kind of dissolve the seams of the way we usually relate to life, to ourselves and others. And you can do this with uh, characteristics of applied to the aggregates. You can do this with the characteristics applied to the uh, knowing of the sense doors, how they change. If all of this seems overly complicated, you also can drop it completely. <laughs> and just allow it to arise when it's useful, uh, particularly when you're stuck. So when you feel kind of stuck in something. right? And if there's anything that could be interesting to investigate um, in particular, I would say, is the quality of this perception and its impermanence also. Its impermanence, its uh, arising on its own, its insubstantiality because that can be key to the whole thing, the key to the whole puzzle. So like with all the songs that we sing here, if it's been helpful to you, please use this in your investigation in working out your own liberation And if anything feels unhelpful, you could just leave it in the box of don't know. Or leave it here in the air, let it go. I remember after the last um, uh, talk that I gave on the Sixth Sense Tour, someone had asked, like, if it's that easy, if, like, Bahia just got enlightened from, like, that one thing, uh, like, how come we have to keep doing all these different versions of it? Stuff, right? Like, why are there all these different teachings? And... It's a good question, but it seems like one thing doesn't fit for everyone. <laughs> and one thing doesn't fit for everyone at every single time. So Buddha gave many different teachings to many different people. <clears throat> and they varied widely. You know, for one person it was like, take this cloth and rub it on your hand and observe. And as that person started to see the impurity, he understood that the body itself was impermanent and was not to be uh, relied on, and he actually awoke. And many other ones that uh, colleagues have talked about, about uh, uh, various different ways in which the application of different teachings and frameworks or practices have helped us to see through, all through history. So don't all that some big idea of some big bang awakening, even though there are these stories of this, though. But just keep being curious, keep being interested, and keep playing uh, in this field. Uh, Keep trying to understand how things work, this mind and body. Uh, Check it out using these tools of awareness. So in this way, we'll be doing what the Buddha recommended, which is to work out your own liberation with diligence. So thank you for your attention. We'll just sit for a moment together.
the Tathagata, when seeing what is to be seen, doesn't construe of an object as seen, doesn't construe of an unseen, doesn't construe of an object to be seen, doesn't construe of a seer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.